You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Women and men see investing differently. Men see investing as a challenge. It excites them. Women see investing as a threat. It terrifies them. Even women who are in the market, unless they have reprogrammed their brain through a lot of education, and even them, there is a tendency to go into survival mode and fear. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Whether you want to get your savings back on track or you're working toward a brand new goal, Fidelity has tips and tools to help you meet your short and long-term savings goals. Visit fidelity.com slash hermoney to learn more. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Well, these last few months have been crazy, and many of us are busier than we have ever been with work and family and overall just trying to keep our heads above water. But some of us have thankfully been able to embrace a little solitude, maybe get around to some long backburnered projects, catch up on our reading, even learn a new skill or two. And it's that last one, the whole learning a new skill thing that we are going to dive into today. What if you could retrain your brain to tap into the power that you have, that we all have to truly take charge of your finances and your life? My guest today, Barbara Hewson, is a financial therapist and wealth coach, the author of six, now seven books. And she has spent decades writing and researching and lecturing on the topic of women and money. And today we are going to talk to her about some of the incredible findings from her new title, Rewire for Wealth, Three Steps Every Woman Can Take to Program Her Brain for Financial Success. The book won't actually hit shelves till early 2021, but I couldn't wait for it, especially since I've heard from many of you that you are really prioritizing self-improvement and self-love right now. I knew Barbara would have some unbelievable pointers for those of you who are looking to work your way out of a financial fog or look at your money from a new perspective. Hey, Barbara, thanks so much for doing this today. Thanks so much, Jean. It's so good to be here with you again. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's really, really nice to see you and be able to talk to you. Tell my audience a little bit about you. I mean, I'm familiar with your work for so many years, but tell us all how you got started helping women with money. It's so interesting because, you know, you never know where the road's going to take you. And if anyone had told me I'd be empowering women financially, I would have told them they were crazy at one point in my life because I didn't understand money. I didn't know anything about it. I came from a wealthy family. My father's was the R of H&R Block. And the only advice he ever gave me about money was don't worry. <laughs> I, don't worry. I thought that was great advice. I didn't want to worry about money. I just wanted to spend it. And of course, under his words were that was the unspoken assumption, there'll always be a man to take care of you, which I loved. And there always was. First, there was my father, and then there was my husband, who was a stockbroker. So he was perfect, right? But I found out very early in my marriage that he was a compulsive gambler. And here's the insane part. Even though I found out many times a year, for over 15 years that we stayed married, that he was gambling my money, my inheritances away, 
I continued to let him manage the money because that's how terrified and intimidated I was by anything financial. And finally, after 15 years, we got a divorce and I decided money's not my thing. I didn't want to deal with money. Well, I have come to see that if you don't deal with money, your money will deal with you. And in the next year, I got tax bills for way over a million dollars for back taxes my ex didn't pay, for illegal deals he got us in. And my signature was on everything. My ex had left the country. I did not have a million dollars, not nowhere close. My father wouldn't lend me the money. I had three daughters. I was not going to raise those girls on the street. That's when I knew I had to get smart. I had to. And I'd go to classes. I'd, uh, yeah, I'd read books. My brain would just like glaze over. But I swear, when you have a commitment, like I was committed. I was down to my toes. I was going to get smart. If not for me, for my children. I have a belief that when you are committed, the universe revolves. You reach your goal. And I was writing. I was a journalist for the San Francisco Business Times. And I was hired for a freelance project to interview women who were smart with money. And those interviews changed my life. I not only got smart about money, but I wrote my first book, Prince Charming Isn't Coming, How Women Get Smart About Money. And suddenly I had this whole new career. And six books later, seven books later now, here I am. Those women that you interviewed, I know, were provided the foundation for a book of yours called Secrets of Six-Figure Women. Do the secrets that you learned from those women still hold true today? Well, that book came later after my Prince Charming book. What happened after I wrote Prince Charming, I learned how to manage my money. I learned how wealth was created. But I didn't know how to make it. And I was traveling all over the country doing financial education for women and doing seminars, and I couldn't make it. And so I started interviewing women who made lots of money. And I made six figures before I even finished writing the book. And I was a chronic underwriter. And do those principles hold today? Oh, yes, they definitely hold today. What does it mean to be an under-earner? That under-earner has nothing to do with the amount you make. An under-earner is anyone who earns less than she needs or desires despite her desire to do otherwise, despite all her efforts to do otherwise. An under-earner is anyone who says, I'd love to make more money, but you can make six figures and be an under-earner. And you can make far less and not be. And my three children, they are under earners, <laughs> but they are what I call mindful under earners. They are doing what they love because it feeds their soul and they have enough money to meet their needs. Under earning never feeds your soul. It is never a conscious choice. It is always a condition of deprivation and not just of money, but of time, of joy, of choices, and most of all, of self-esteem. We're going to dig into rewiring your brain for wealth in just a second, but I don't want to leave this topic Good. just yet. Good. If you feel like you're an under earner in the middle of a pandemic, is that something that you can do something about? You could always do something. You can rarely change the external circumstances, but you can always do what you can change how you react to them. I mean, I'd have to each person has their own situation, but this is a wonderful time to go within. This is a wonderful time to upgrade your skills. 
to start studying something, to network. It's a great time to network. It's a great time to do all those things that our busyness has kept us from doing. So yes, you can always, always lay the stage for overcoming under earning. How do you rewire your brain for financial success? What does that mean? That's a, that's a really good question. So I've always known, ever since I wrote my book, it's not so much what you do, it's how you think that creates financial success. And what you do comes from what you think. And so I've always been focused, as many have, on shifting our mindset. And still, it was a tough slog for me too. I mean, changing your mindset is a tough slog. There's all this resistance that comes up. And one day, six years ago, seven years ago, I was thinking about this. I was thinking there's something more in helping women. And of course, men, I focus on women, but there was more in this process of helping people go to the next level in everything. And one day I was turning on my email and this article about neuroscience came through and I started reading it. And it's like, oh, wow. And that was six years, seven years ago. And I started studying neuroscience and I started adding it. And neuroscience, of course, is the study of the brain. And what we've seen is that, I mean, there's many theories, but the theory that really struck me is how our mind programs our brain. And our brain is programmed from the time we were little. And so really our brain, how our brain is structured is really like a scrapbook of the past, all our past beliefs. And in order to change our relationship with anything, but let's focus here on the money. In order to change our relationship with money, it's important to change our thoughts, which then will go over time, reprogram the brain. The way you change your neural pathways is by changing your thoughts and feelings. But what's important is the neural pathways do not want to be changed. They they are stuck like glue in there. And everything in you says, every time you go to do something different, everything says, no, don't go there, don't do that. And so I created over a period of four or five years a system, a, 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 a process to help women rewire their brain by shifting their thoughts and distilling it down to three steps. I want to dig into those three steps and what they are, as much of it as you can give us in a short course. But before I do that, let me just remind everyone that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. When the market is uncertain, it's more important than ever to have a plan for your savings. And that's where Fidelity comes in. They'll work with you to create a savings and investment strategy and help you fine-tune it whenever life changes. Plus, they have tips and online tools like their planning and guidance center that can help you meet your short and long-term goals. So visit fidelity.com slash hermoney to learn more. We are back with Barbara Hewson, author of Rewire for Wealth, Three Steps Every Woman Can Take to Program Her Brain for Financial Success. All right, three steps. So what are they? And, and maybe can you give us an example or two? So let me give you the three steps. Then let me give them to you and I'll define them. Okay. And let me give then, I'll tell you an example of how to apply those three steps. 
And maybe, do you want to take an example from your own life of someplace you're stuck or having resistance? I'm always stuck and having resistance, but um, sure. Yeah, let's do it. So let me give you the steps and then let's see where we can apply this to you. Okay. Okay. So you just think. Okay. So the three steps are recognize, reframe, and respond differently. So do you want to start with you? You can start with me. Sure. Okay. So tell me a place you're feeling stuck or a place you want to change and you're having a little difficulty. Besides the amount of Chardonnay that I am drinking during COVID, or, or you want to do this, the amount of Chardonnay I'm drinking during COVID? No, let's think of a, a good example. I am feeling stuck. I'm actually feeling a little stuck growing my team. That's not necessarily a, a money thing, but it is a, it is a business thing. It does need to be money. Okay. All right. I'm feeling a little stuck on figuring out how to do that. I would say across the board, our problems with money are really not about money. There's always something deeper underneath. So on one hand, this is a money problem because it's your business. So if you can say a little bit about because I want to see here what your role is in this and where you are having problems. And, and I really appreciate your being so open. No, it's okay. I mean, I think this is, you know, this is what we do and this is this is how we learn and our listeners are very open with me. So we got to, you know, it's two-way street here. I always feel like when I take on a new employee, I want to make so sure that I am going to have enough revenue to support that person um in into for as long as they want to stay with the company. And with COVID and revenues, you know, revenues have been okay. I'm I'm really fortunate. Our company's doing okay, but I, I worry about what's around the corner. So is the problem the employee and team or your worry about the future and making plans now? That is the problem. Yes. What is the problem? It's the making plans. It's the worry is making plans that financially, maybe the company won't be able to support, not knowing how we'll grow. Has this been a pattern for you, the worry? When things are become, when you're in uncertainty, you, you have a tendency to worry? Yeah, my whole okay. life. You're a worrier. <laughs> okay, is this something you, you'd like to change? I mean, yes and no. I don't want to be that person who hires somebody and then can't support them two months later. I don't want to be that person. So that's not what you want to change. You don't want to change your compassion and your caring and your commitment to your people. No. What I hear you may want to change is your worry about yeah. the, the, the uncertainty because the worry obviously is not solving anything. It's not helping you. And the reason I ask, is this something you want to change? And you don't even have to tell me now. But if you don't want to change something to anyone listening, you're not going to change it. Your brain knows you're not going to want, you don't want to change it. You don't want to change it. So I'm using that as a as, as an example. As a Let, let's take an example that's maybe, and I, I'm going to sit down on your couch and we can solve all these problems, but let's take an example of somebody who wants to save more money or, you well, know. I was having so much fun with you, uh, Who I just want to make sure that, that universally we give people who are listening to this podcast what they need, you know, who wants to, t to save more money, wants to, I, I know there's so many women out there who are sitting on cash in their savings accounts that they'd like to invest, but they just can't get themselves over that hump. Okay. So if they're scared to make a move financially, 
Mm-hmm. They're scared, whether it's saving or investing or whatever it is, they're scared to make a move. And that fear can usually be traced back earlier, just like your worry. It can usually be traced back earlier. But what you want to change is this pattern or this tendency to be scared to make a move in times of uncertainty, let's say. So the first step is to recognize, oh, I'm having a fearful thought. I'm looking at my bank account and I'm thinking, this should be in investments. I need to put this in my retirement. And yet I am scared. Isn't that interesting? So you recognize it as an, like a disinterested observer. It's just someone out of body. Isn't that interesting? I'm having a fearful thought. And what you're doing then is you are noticing it is your thought. It is not the truth. It is a thought about fear that I'm having a thought. And what you want to do is separate yourself from the fearful thought. And then you, you look at that, I'm having a fearful thought. And the second step is to reframe it. How can I see this differently? So when you reframe something, a general way I reframe, for example, I get scared a lot. I have a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. And so when I get scared about doing something, I will, oh, look, I'm having a fearful thought. This is a pattern. I have fearful thoughts a lot. It's not the truth. It doesn't mean I am going to hell. I, this is dangerous. It just means I'm having a fearful thought. And then I reframe it. And, and a really easy way to reframe is this is an opportunity for me to rewrite it. This is an opportunity for me to change the fearful neural pathways in my brain that are programmed to get scared in uncertainty. And the third step is to respond differently, not like you normally have. So the tendency is you always want to respond to the same. You always want to look at the bank account. Oh, I should put this in my retirement. Don't respond like that. Do something different. What can you do differently? Oh, let me sign up for her money newsletter and actually read it. Or let me uh, take a course on investing. Or let me call the person at the bank and talk to them. So find things to do. And it, this is how you rewire your brain. Because what happens every time you go to do something different, your brain cries out, stop, stop, it's dangerous. You're going to die. It's going to be awful. Because our brain was programmed for survival from our very early ancestors. So every time we go to do this, something we, don't, we haven't done before, we are programmed for survival and we feel that we're going to die. And what happens is our thinking brain, our rational brain, prefrontal cortex turns off. And we want to turn that thinking brain back on and the fear response off. And you do that by responding differently over and over and over again until the old neural pathway starts kind of withering away, weakening and weakening, and the new neural pathway gets stronger and stronger. One of the things you mention in the book is that men and women respond to financial information differently. Oh, yeah. Can you dig into that a little bit for us? Yeah, I, I can. I think the thing that really struck me, there's many ways they respond differently. For example, men are much more transaction-oriented. Women are much more relationship-oriented. So when men go to a financial advisor, they want to know about the transactions. They want to know about performance. Women, they want to have a relationship with that. They want to know how this money is going to help their children. They can use it to help their community. 
But the thing that, that really struck me is they found that women and men see investing differently. Men see investing as a challenge. It excites them. Women see investing as a threat. It terrifies them. Even women who are in the market, unless they have reprogrammed their brain through a lot of education, and even them, there is a tendency to go into survival mode and fear. And that's what I want to change. Yeah, well, it's that fear, I think, that is responsible for the fact that so many of us have cash sitting in checking doing nothing when it should be really working for us. Another concept that you dig into, there is so much, I hope that our our listeners will all pick up this book and read it because there's so much good in there. But another concept that you talk about, and I think a lot of people can relate to, is that there are people out there who are just in this financial fog, right? They're in this financial never, never land. How do you know when you're in it and how do you get out of it? Well, I spent 40 some years in a financial fog. And most of us in a financial fog, we don't want to get out. <laughs> we don't want to. Because as uncomfortable as it feels to be in that fog, there's something very safe about not having to take action. There's something very safe. Usually for women, they found especially is that it often takes a crisis to get women to get serious about finances. The loss of a job, the loss of a spouse, or on the brink of retirement. And they go, oh my God, I forgot to save. And, and your message and my message and so many others is don't wait for a crisis because that's the worst time to start making new decisions. And uh, I think the way to motivate women to get out of a fog is not the way so many in the financial industry are doing it, which is why I love that your work is all towards women, is not to scare them, not to tell them that, that they're going to be responsible for their finances, you know, 90% of them, and, and all those things, all those awful things that can happen. He said, tell them how by being financially, financially responsible, they can change their lives, they can change the lives of people they love, they can give to causes they they feel passionate about. And it's really, it's not even about money. I am so convinced that it is about the problems with money are not about money. It's our fear and ambivalence about power. And a woman who takes the financial reins, a woman who really takes charge of her money, she takes charge of her life. Mm-hmm. And it's a very powerful. I, I agree with you. The thing that's made me feel the best in the last couple of months, sort of definitionally, is my team and I were working on a, a book, a money book for teenage women, oh. um, for young adult women. And we've come upon this concept of managing your money as a form of self-care. Yeah. And I, you know, I had never really thought about it in those terms, but I think if we can get particularly this generation, particularly millennials who seem to be all about self-care, which is great. I think we should all be about self-care, but I think if we can get that message across, that's a really good thing. It is about self-care and Mm self-love because no one should ever have to stay in a relationship or a job they hate or any because they can't afford to leave. It's really an act of love for others because it's what our money can do to help others to reshape this world. And yes, it is an act of self-care. It is totally self-care because I'm telling you, when you take charge of your money, you feel a hell of a lot better about yourself. Like there's no greater high. 
You are absolutely right. Barbara, in the interim between when this podcast launches and when the new book comes out, where do we get more access to you and all the wonderful stuff you're doing? Mm. Barbara hyphen Hewson, Barbara hyphen dash H-U-S-O-N dot com. That's my website. I'm very accessible. I would love to hear from you. Come talk to me there. Absolutely. Barbara, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I always love talking. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. And Catherine has joined me for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hello, Jean. That was great. Oh, it was fun to talk to her. I mean, I've known Barbara for a long time, and some of our listeners, I'm sure, will have put together the fact that Barbara's last name used to be Stanny. When she wrote Prince Charming Isn't Coming, she published it under Barbara Stanny. And so for those of you who are trying to put things together, you're thinking of the right woman. <laughs> yeah, I always love it when people dive in with you because you're always diving in with everybody else. And when somebody dives in with you and is getting into the nitty gritty with you, it's always exciting for me to listen to that. Remember when Carl Richards was on the podcast and he said he was going to hijack it? That's kind of how that felt. <laughs> <laughs> well, not coincidentally, I loved that show too. That was a fun one. That was a fun one. All righty, let's dig in and help some other people at this point. Yes. Our first question comes to us from Amber. She writes, Hi, Jean. First and foremost, thank you for your work. I'm a 40-year-old mother of three working full-time after a 10-year break to raise my children. I've been working steadily for three years and contribute to a 401k plan for retirement. My current contribution is 4%, which is the maximum matched by my employer. In total, the balance of my 401k is approximately $10,000. Prior to my role as a mother, I'd only worked one year after completing grad school. I currently have a state-funded retirement plan with a balance of just under $1,000. Although I'm no longer employed in this role, I've kept this account, which has received roughly $40 in interest annually since 2003. To my knowledge, I'm not eligible to continue to contribute to it. My husband has worked steadily across all these years and maintains a substantial and healthy retirement fund. This leads me to several questions for you. Number one, should I adjust my current 401k to a riskier profile since I'm late to saving for retirement? My current mix is 87% stocks, 10% bonds, and 3% money market. Number two, should I continue to allow the state retirement fund to accrue a small amount of interest and leave it as it is, or pursue another method to roll over or incorporate it into my 401k? To my knowledge, a lump sum distribution would be approximately $650 with tax consequences. Thank you for your help. Thank you so much for writing, Amber. So a couple of things about this question, a couple of ways I, I would probably like to see you go about handling it. The first is that because that state-funded retirement plan is so small, it, it's almost like an orphan 401k. If you can, with no cost and no tax impact, roll it into your current 401k, I would do that. If you are going to have to pay taxes on it, I wouldn't do it. I would just leave it alone and, and let it be and, and let it do its thing on the side. And I would do that just for administrative ease because with such a small balance in it, it's probably not worth that much of your time to worry about it. The second element of your question is whether you should essentially take more risk 
with your 401k in order to make up for lost time? And here my answer is a resounding no. You are already taking a lot of risk with that 401k. At 87% in stocks, you are above where I would put you if I was doing this asset allocation, which is not to say that that's wrong. You've got to look at your asset allocation combined with what your husband is doing in his 401k or his retirement accounts. You should be allocating your assets as a family. And if you've decided as a family that you're going to take more risk and he's going to take less risk and that it's all going to work its way out in the end, then I'm cool with that. If you haven't had that conversation or made those decisions, it's time to have them. The way we make up ground in a 401k is by trying to figure out a way to save a little bit more, not by taking more risk than we can afford to take. And that's been my MO. That's been my way of doing business forever. Now, I also want you to understand that at 40, you got a lot of time. You have a lot of time to make up ground. So I don't want you worrying about this too much, particularly because your husband is and has been saving at what sounds like a healthy rate. But as a family, I would like to see you get to the point where you are putting away at least 15% of your combined incomes, and that can include matching dollars. So I hope that gets you on the right track, and I hope that that helps. I think that's perfect. I also was going to say that 40 is so young. You know, a lot of people start at 40. Yeah, and exactly. I, I don't think I woke up until 40. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Our next question is from Alexandria. She writes, Hi, Jean. I'm a huge fan of your newsletters and podcasts and appreciate what you do for all of us. I'm a 50-year-old single woman who is laser-focused on trying to fund my retirement and get my two children through college. I own a Vanguard account that includes a brokerage account, a rollover IRA, 529 plans, and a Roth that I fund to the maximum allowance. I also have an employer-sponsored account that I try to fund enough to get the match. My question is that I'm currently paying Vanguard to manage my brokerage account and rollover IRA. That's about $1,824,000 combined. I know the management fees are low, but I wonder if I can do this myself. Can I teach myself to easily rebalance? I'm not really sure what benefit I'm getting besides my return rate, but I wonder if I could get the same return rate on my own. I do not deposit anything currently into these accounts. It's just growing on interest. Thank you. So, Alexandria, I have no doubt that you could do this for yourself, but I do wonder what exactly they are doing. And I think... The way to get that information is to actually ask them. Hop on the phone. I'm sure you have a designated person that you deal with and ask them what they're doing on the, on your behalf. And only by knowing the answer to those questions will you be able to figure out if you can rebalance by yourself. There, there are many ways to rebalance these days. Um, you can do it by hand, by looking at your asset allocation, uh, and and selling things and, and buying others. You can do it using a robo-advisor, which all the big brokerage firms have these days built in. You don't have to go with a standalone robo. Um, and at that point, you'll have a better sense of whether or not this is a task that you want to 
devote your time and your energy and your resources to. You'll also have a better sense of what you're getting versus what you're paying. And I think that's really important. I do see reading through the lines here that you are a woman with a lot on your plate, um, trying to get two kids through college, trying to fund your own retirement. I wouldn't mind if you sat down with a more holistic financial advisor, if you took the time to chart out what your goals are for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and then make sure that these considerable resources that you have managed to pull together are working for you in a way that they're absolutely without question going to get you there. This is not somebody that you have to have on your payroll forever. I've said this before. You can do a one and done kind of a financial physical with a financial advisor. But I I do think particularly with assets of these size, it's really important to do a sanity check every once in a while. And the last thing that I would say here is that you wrote in your letter that you also have an employer-sponsored account that you try to fund enough to get the match. With assets of this size, you should absolutely be grabbing the match. I think there's no reason for you to be leaving any free money on the table. So at the very least, I would try to make sure that you're doing that year in and year out. Yep, absolutely. The best advice out there, free money. Free money, just take it. (laughs) Our last question is from an anonymous listener. She writes, I'm a loyal podcast listener and often share your knowledge with my two grown daughters. I'm planning for my retirement in 10 years. My dilemma surrounds knowing what my likely social security benefit would be at retirement age. My impediment is that I'm divorced after a 29-year marriage with a little work history of my own. I realize that if I'm not remarried when I reach retirement age, I can collect half of my husband's benefit with no reduction for him. For planning purposes, I would like to know what that monthly benefit number would be for me. What steps do you suggest I take to learn that vital information so that I can plan for my retirement in a responsible way? You should absolutely know what you can receive from your former husband's benefits. And you're absolutely right. You're totally entitled. This is a very easy answer, actually. Call the Social Security Administration. You may need your former husband's Social Security number. I hope you have it. Even if you don't, give them a call anyway. And they should be able to fill you in to what he is going to receive and what you can receive as a result. It should not be a difficult conversation. I do know that the lines at Social Security are often long and the hold times are often long. So just listen when the recording tells you to call back at a particular time of day because you are more likely to get through during those less busy times. But you should absolutely have this information because it's information that you need to plan your future. And and good luck with that. Well, if he's still working and he is still several years away from retirement, how will she know what that benefit might be after he completes those like high earning years at the end of his career? Chances are he's already in those high earning years and has been for a while, just based on the length of the marriage. And so I expect that she'll be able, she's not gonna be able to get an exact dollar number, but she should be able to get fairly close. 
And once she does that, then she has at least a basis of information on which to plan the rest of her financial life, which I think is exactly what she's asking for. Right. No, that's a good point. She can probably get within $100 a month of of what she's going to get. Exactly. Exactly. But trying to make these plans without having this information at all, I completely understand why that would make you really anxious or nervous because how do you plan when you have no idea how much money is going to be coming in? Right. So call sooner rather than later. And thank you so much for the question. Thanks, Catherine, for the mailbag. Thanks, Jean. In today's Thrive, the most essential skills you're building while working from home. These days, it's pretty easy to feel disconnected from work or think of these months as, quote, not part of your real job, unquote. But experience is experience, and this widespread experiment in remote working can translate to concrete skills for tangible career growth. This week at Her Money, we've got a roundup of the most actionable career skills you may have reinforced over the past few months. So let's look at some of our favorites. First on the list, communication. Since most workers aren't able to interact in person during this time, they've had to hone communication skills in other areas like email response time and Zoom call etiquette. In the age of COVID-19, verbal and written communication skills are paramount. We've all had to get creative in finding ways to connect and be persuasive without using any of our typical in-person communication strategies. Second, time management. The stress and uncertainty that comes along with a global pandemic, along with our ever-demanding responsibilities to family, have made time management more difficult than usual. But stop and think about all the ways in which you've approached your daily schedule with renewed resolve, listened to yourself, and attempted to work smarter rather than harder. You've been building a strong time management muscle that you might not have even realized was there. And productivity. In your next cover letter, interview, or review session, describe how you figured out your own work-from-home rhythm, how you set the priority levels of different projects, how you separated professional and personal time, doubled as your own manager, or solved your own day-to-day problems. My guess is that you've done more than one of these over the past few months, and these are skills that will be welcome no matter what the next step in your career happens to be. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Barbara Hewson for chatting with us about how we can really get to the bottom of some of our money decisions and helping us retrain our brains to save more and make smarter financial decisions overall. I am absolutely in for some of her suggestions. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk soon.